Please take your Bible and turn with me to Jeremiah 17 this evening. Turn with me, because I have one too. Um, Words of life. We come this evening to what is likely the most well-known passage in the book of Jeremiah. The Word of God in all aspects is timeless, but the message of Jeremiah 17 is on a whole nother level of timelessness. It's timeless and it's essential. It contains words uh, not only unto which we ought to listen, but words upon which we can build the very foundation of our lives. And the message is not just one that applies in a Christian sense, but it is one that is very timely. It is one that applies to the way we recognize and perceive culture, to how we operate in the world that is around us. So tonight we hear the words of life, the message that if you receive it with gladness will uh, define your spiritual success. We begin in verses 1 and 2 of Jeremiah 17, and the Bible tells us this, The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, And with the point of a diamond, it is graven upon the table of their heart and upon the horns of your altars, while their children remember their altars and their groves by the green trees upon the high hills. So last week in our time together in Jeremiah 16, uh, we saw a new twist on a common message, right? A new twist on a familiar message. We observed that God took this message of judgment, and, and judgment is a very familiar message at this point. But then not only did we see the typical mercy and love of the Lord, but he bridged the gap to teach deeper lessons of salvation, and not just of salvation to the, the Jews in this promise of restoration, but in Gentile salvation and the promise promises found therein. And this message is actually continued, it seems, into Jeremiah 17. So the Jeremiah 17 uh, um, message is very strongly linked to the context found in chapter 16. And we assume this because we don't see any transition, right? We don't see here in verse 1, the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah, or uh, then the Lord told me, or any of those sorts of transitional statements that we've seen throughout the book that seem to indicate that Jeremiah is getting something new. He's getting something different. Much to the contrary, we see a continuation here. Uh, Simply put, just bam, the sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, right? We just jump right into the message. And this is not characteristic of the beginning of one of Jeremiah's messages. Characteristically, the beginning of his messages have talked about how Jeremiah has received something from the Lord. The Lord told me this, or the Lord told me to tell Judah this, or the Lord told me to go and stand in this place and declare to these people, or whatever the case may be. So we assume that the teaching, because it's just just continuing that this is the, the, the message that just continues. Now, at the end of Jeremiah 16, we read God's declaration that the whole world will know he is God, right? Verse 21 of chapter 16. Therefore, behold, I will this once cause them to know. I will cause them to know my hand and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. God states that the sin of Judah then, as he continues in the context, is written with a pen of iron and with the point of a diamond. Iron was one of the strongest metals known to society at that time. Uh, That the sins of Judah are written with a pen of iron means that it is resolute, it is absolute, it is firm. They will not waver from their sin. They will not remove. Now, we could interpret this in a couple of ways, right? It could be the judgment of Judah is resolute because of their sin, but that's not actually what we read here, right? We read, the sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with a point of a diamond, and graven upon the table of their hearts. That they have graven with a pen of iron that has a tip of diamond their sin upon their hearts, right? This is resolution as it relates to their determination to sin that we see here. A diamond, of course, being the naturally the uh, hardest naturally occurring substance known to man at this time yet and still, showing just how permanent, right? And then, of course, having that tip of that pen being diamond etching on their heart their sin is literally the idea here. That the pen is made of iron, the tip is diamond, and they have etched upon their hearts 
their sinful ways. They are determined with all their heart that they might sin. God says that this pen of iron with the tip of diamond has graven the sin on their hearts and in their religious actions, sin is engraved upon them. That they sin like they breathe effectively. It's just who they have made themselves to be. And even their children, he says in verse 2, are steeped in its evil, whilst their children remember their altars and their groves by the green trees upon the high hills. He continues in verses 3 and 4. O my mountain in the field, I will give thy substance and thy treasures to the spoil, and thy high places for sin throughout all thy borders, and thou, even thyself, shalt discontinue from thine heritage that I, give, that I gave thee. And I will cause thee to serve thine enemies in the land which thou knowest not, for ye have kindled a fire in mine anger, which shall burn forever. So upon considering the resolute nature of their rebellion, having graven their rebellion with a pen of iron and a tip of, uh, of a diamond upon their hearts, God again declares his judgment. And he calls Judah his mountain in the field. Some think this is a direct reference to Jerusalem, as, of course, Jerusalem is Mount Zion, right? It is built upon a mountain. But the inconsistency there is that Jerusalem is not a mountain in the midst of fields. It's not a a grand plain that all of a sudden there's a mountain jutting up and Jerusalem is built upon that mountain. Much to the contrary, Jerusalem is on Mount Zion and is surrounded by other mounts, other hills, other um, uh, uh, topography that is very similar Rather than, it seems as though God may be speaking of Judah here as the nation that he has elevated above other nations, as a metaphorical mountain that stretches or that that arises from the field. That God is, in grief and regret, highlighting that they are special to him. That they, Judah, is his mountain in the midst of all the fields. That they are that, that, that thing that he has elevated, that nation that he has elevated above those that were around them. And so God promises here to this mountain in the field that he will again give their substance to become spoil. Give their treasures, their substances, to be someone else's treasure, someone else's spoil. The nation will cease to function, God tells them. They will serve their enemies. And all because their sin has kindled the anger of the Lord. And he mentions this that they have kindled a fire under God in his anger. And that fire will burn forever. It will not just die out. God is not going to just get over it. Right? There must be judgment. Now, perk your ears beginning in verse 5. All of this has been very characteristic. God is going to judge the nation. The nation is sinning. They've heard that. We've heard that. But beginning in verse 5, here is where In yet another declaration of God's judgment, we find a strong declaration of timeless truths which undergirds the very essence of the message of the Bible and which uh, we'll we'll focus our time on this evening. So the Bible says in verses 5 and 6, Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man, and maketh flesh his arm, and whose heart departeth from the Lord. For he shall be like the heath in the desert, and shall not see when good cometh, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness, in a salt land, and not inhabited. So the Lord says to the nation, He gives this truth, and it's a a very broad truth. Cursed is the man that trusts in man. Cursed is the man that makes the flesh his arm. The idea of making flesh his arm is simply the man that trusts in the things of man, that trusts in the material. There are, the arm is the means by which I get things done. My arm uh, is, is symbolic of my source of strength. It's, it's the, the, the thing by which I write. It's the thing by which I hammer. It's the thing by which I saw. It's the thing by which I pull. It's the thing by which I do just about everything that I do is my arm. And so the idea, if I were to say, my wife is my right arm, 
right? Everybody knows what I mean by that. What I mean by my wife is my right arm is that she is essential to me. She is, I could not live without her. She is in, intrinsic to my capacity to function. So God said, curse is, is the man that makes flesh his arm, that puts all of his trust in the things of man, whether that be himself or some other man or money or religion or whatever it might be. Cursed is the man that trusts in the temporary things of this life in the, the things that, that cannot and will not remain. Remember that for the whole book of Jeremiah, there has been a controversy between Jeremiah and the other pastors and the prophets. And while on the surface it might seem as though this controversy is the, the claims of Jeremiah as it relates to what God has said, as opposed to the claims of these pastors and prophets as it relates to what God has said, uh, that's only a little bit of the controversy. In fact, uh, it's not so much that the, the people of Judah don't know that there is sin in the camp. The controversy is more over what is God going to do about it. And the pastors and the priests say, don't worry, God's not going to bring about the kind of judgment that Jeremiah is talking about. But notice what God is telling them here. This debate about what they're going to trust in. Are they going to trust in their own goodness? Are they going to trust in the, in, in the fact that, that, um, there are, uh, that they have their armies and that they have their king? Or are they going to trust in the Lord and are they going to trust in what he has said? And God says you can't have it both ways. You can't trust in man and then simultaneously say that your heart is God's. When you trust in man, when you make the flesh your arm, your heart has departed from the Lord. What is the curse upon this one who trusts in the flesh rather than in God? Jeremiah says he will be like the heath in the desert. Heath is a shrub that has characteristically been used throughout history to make brooms, thatch, and at times to stuff mattresses. As a plant, it's actually quite beautiful. If you look at the heath that's found in the area of Palestine, it grows these small flowers and, and, and it's this, this thick shrub. It's quite beautiful. But when it's dry and dead, it becomes coarse. It becomes brittle. And this is the picture of the man who trusts in himself. He is dry. He is brittle. He is uh, a rough. He will not see when good comes. He will inhabit places lacking in water. The word translated heath here is actually not the word for the plant heath. It's actually the word for nakedness. It's translated heath in connection to what God is about to say next as it relates to the man who is blessed. And so the idea as, as it, it is laid out plainly is the man who makes flesh his arm is a man who has nothing. He's like the man that steps into a battle without his armor. He's like the man who goes to a meal but didn't bring the food. He is a man who has not brought the essential thing necessary to actually be successful at his task. And the actual meaning of this word helps us understand what God is trying to say here. That life without the Lord, the life of a man who is trusting in himself, in his own strength, in his capacities, to pick himself up, regardless of his success on an earthly plane, this life is not spiritually successful and cannot be spiritually successful. This life is no life at all. It is naked. It is stripped of the essential qualities of true life. What sustains a man in hard times? What directs a man into joy and into peace? What is the source of true life? Not the source of material happiness, not the source of physical health. What is the source of that thing which gives you inside out joy, inside out peace? Not breathing and heart beating and those sorts of things, but true life, meaningful fulfillment, joy, contentment, stability, control, delight. What is the source of those things? Man can trust himself and achieve any number of things. Man can trust himself and he can be a healthy man. He can be a wealthy man. He can have what he wants. He can find comfort. He can occupy his mind. He can occupy his time. But within the whole of the earth and its operation, there is nothing that this earth, the temporal things of this earth, or that a man can offer himself or others that can bring him true life. 
that can bring him the inside out spiritual connection to the Lord and to the things of the world to come. The man who trusts in himself thus, God says, is cursed. And then God contrasts this with the man who trusts in the Lord, who makes the Lord his arm, who places all of his faith in the Lord. And verses 7 and 8 tell us this. Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord and whose hope the Lord is. For he shall be as a tree planted by the waters and that spreadeth out her roots by the river and shall not see when heat cometh. But her leaf shall be green and shall not be careful in the year of drought. Neither shall cease from yielding fruit. Notice the strong contrast here between the blessing and the cursing. This strong covenant language being used here. Blessing, cursing. But instead of the nation being blessed or the nation being cursed, it's each man standing individually before the Lord. Blessing or cursing based upon his disposition to God and to God's word. So the man who trusts in the Lord, the man in whose hope the Lord is, he is not like the heath in the desert. He is not like the shrub that is just reaching out for rain and when rain does not come or when the season ends, it shrivels up and it dries up and it's good for nothing but thatch. It's good for nothing but to stuff a mattress. It's good for nothing but to make a coarse broom for, for, with which to, to, to uh, uh, scrape up dust and dirt. Rather, he's like a tree, but not just any tree. Not just a tree, but a tree that is planted by the water. See, the, a tree that's planted by the water has a very unique privilege. And that is that that tree, because his roots extend into the water, is not dependent upon circumstances to be nourished. A drought comes and the tree says, okay, I've got my own source. There's no rain, that's okay. The tree doesn't need rain to then absorb into the ground for then its roots to draw it into the tree because its roots go into a body of water. Its roots go into the rivers of water. It has a constant source of complete sustenance. Heat, it doesn't matter how hot it is because it can draw from the waters. Its roots go right into the water. The leaves of this tree are always green because it is constantly fed. Drought will not stop the tree from growing or even from bearing fruit because its roots rest in the source of life. This is the man who trusts in the Lord. He will not see when heat comes. Droughts will not bother him. We talked this morning about victory. Paul asking in Romans, uh, if God be for us, who can be against us? In all these things, he said, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. What is the idea there? Why is it that we can have victory? Why is it that there can be confidence in that victory? It's not because if you're a Christian, circumstances always go well. It's not because if you're a Christian, you always have plenty of money. It's not because if you're a Christian, you're always going to be healthy. It's because if you're a Christian, regardless of whether it's hot or dry or cold or whatever it might be, the roots of the believer are implanted in the source of life. And so he is receiving constant sustenance in the midst of the heat, in the midst of the drought, in the midst of whatever circumstances come your way, if you are trusting in the Lord, if your roots are dug deep into the Lord, into the source of life, then you are immovable. You will not be thrown off by the difficulties of life when they present themselves. Now, naturally, we'll come back to this in our application, but this leads us to a definitive statement, which should be, and if not, it needs to become a very guiding force for your life in verses 9 and 10. Jeremiah writes, uh, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. When the Bible speaks of our heart, it speaks of the place where our emotions touch our will. It speaks of the place where our volition and our feelings merge, where we choose what to do with how we feel. And the Bible says you should not trust your 
heart. The way you feel about something is one of the most manipulatable things on the earth. I mentioned a few weeks ago as we were talking about truth, right? That, our, that a person's day can change on a dime. You can be having a terrible day and then you get one phone call from an old friend and all of a sudden you're having a great day, right? You can be having a great day and then you realize one thing. I, I left the light on or I forgot to do this and now the rest of your day is plagued with, is, is kind of overhung with the specter of what you didn't do or what you forgot to do, right? All of a sudden, your feelings have entirely changed. You're a little extra hungry one day, and that makes you grumpy. Whatever it might be, there are all of these things that can manipulate, that can change your feelings so easily. And if our feelings can be changed so easily, if our emotions can be so easily manipulated, if our hearts can be so easily deceived, then we are fools to trust it. We're fools to trust it. We live in a society today that is all one big ball of emotions. And culture, and society, and media, and politicians, and a lot of pastors and religious leaders are observing that ball of emotions and they're just tweaking it in every direction. And people's emotions are flying all over the place. And they're making decisions based upon emotions. And right now, the country's making policy based upon emotions. This is bad news. This is really bad news. Because the way I feel about things is entirely manipulatable. Based upon what I'm told, what I'm not told. If we don't have anything deeper than just how we feel about things to go off of, then we're in trouble because the heart is deceitful. And not only is the heart able to be deceived by other things, which is what I've talked about so far, but the heart is deceitful in and of itself. It's not just that other things are able to manipulate you. The way you feel about something is not only susceptible of being changed by outside forces, but the way you feel about things, what you want in and of yourself can deceive you. Your own feelings can deceive you. Apart from any outside force, any manipulating force, your own feelings can twist you into doing things that you ought not do simply because it feels right, simply because it feels good. What you naturally want what, and what feels naturally good, these things are not always right. You can't always trust your gut to do what is actually objectively right. Nor can you say that something is right because it's genuine or because it's authentic or because it's how you truly feel. One of the things going around today, one of the big lies going around today is if it's natural, that makes it right. If it's authentic, that makes it true. Absolutely not. You can be authentically wrong. You can absolutely be authentically wrong. You can believe something with all your heart. You can feel it with every fiber of your being and be absolutely wrong. If I believe that two plus two is five, it doesn't matter how much I believe it, it doesn't make it right. And I may be entirely authentic in that, but it doesn't make it right. Feelings are not only fleeting, they are changeable. But your heart can be driven by your sin nature to make you really want Things which are objectively wrong. What this means is that your feelings and your emotions, your heart, are not good or adequate measures for whether something is right or wrong. Jeremiah asks, the heart is deceivable of all things, who can know it? Who can know whether or not the heart is deceiving? Who can know whether or not those feelings you feel are motivated by that which is proper or that which is not. There are times when a proper emotion even can drive me to actions which feel right but aren't right. To feel bad for the poor. This is a right and a good thing. This is, a, this is an emotion which has its place. I feel bad for the poor. I have empathy for the poor. This is right. This is good. Now if those feelings drive me to take the things that I have and to give them to the poor then all is well. My feelings have driven me into a right action. 
And then I give to the poor, the poor smiles, and I feel good about that. But if those same feelings drive me to steal someone else's stuff and to give it to the poor. Now, I walk away seeing the smiling faces of the poor, and I still feel good about it. But I have done something objectively wrong in that I stole something from someone else to give it to that poor person. And the fact that I feel bad for the poor person and the fact that I feel good having left the poor person because the poor person has something they didn't have before does not change the fact that my heart drove me to do something wrong in order to see it brought about. Right? My heart cannot tell me My feelings cannot tell me that what I have done is wrong because I felt good on this end and I felt good on that end. So if it feels good to give to the poor and it feels good to see the poor happy, how can I know whether or not the things I do between feeling like the poor need to be helped and helping the poor are right or wrong? Well, my feelings can't help me with that. I need something more objective. And this is where God says in verse 10, I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins. The reins, like the reins of a horse. This is the thing that directs us, right? Our motivations. God says, here's the thing. Your feelings must be subservient to my law, to my character. How do I know whether or not what I'm feeling is right or wrong? It's natural. It's authentic. It must be right. It may not be right. How do I know? Filter it through the Bible. Filter it through the Lord because the Lord is the one that tries the reins, searches the heart. And he will give every man according to his ways and the fruit of his doings, he warns. Our decisions aren't justified by our outcomes. The ends does not justify the means. The standard for right or wrong is God. And regardless of what I feel, what is right is what agrees with God. God is our judge, not man, and not our own feelings. Our own feelings will not be our judge on the day of judgment. And if you are subjecting what is right or wrong simply to your feelings, you are deceived. Because your feelings can be hit or miss. Verse 11. Jeremiah writes, As the partridge sitteth on eggs, and hatcheth them not, so he that getteth riches, and not by right, shall leave them in the midst of his days, and at the end shall be a fool. So God gives an example of the problem as it relates to riches in verse 11. And he begins with, with a, an actual animal example. And he speaks of what the King James Version calls a partridge, which there are partridges in the Middle East, and uh, they do have a uniqueness about them, which we'll talk about, uh, that sits on eggs but doesn't hatch them. There are some different ideas about what exactly this means. Some believe it, it speaks of birds which have ground nests. And what some of these birds do is they sit on these nests, but then at some point a predator comes in and steals the eggs and they don't realize it. So they continue to sit on these nests until such time as the eggs are supposed to be hatched, but there are no eggs there because they were already stolen by predators. And that's sort of an idea. Um, others believe it speaks of birds in the Middle East that routinely sit on eggs that are not their own. And then the, these eggs do, in fact, hatch, but then these birds, having sat on eggs that were not their own, of course, the birds very soon and quickly find out that, that the person who sat on them uh, and, and warmed the egg is not their, their uh, own species, and they leave quickly because they are not uh, related. They, they are not hers. Either way, the point of the analogy is this. Those who, trusting their feelings, get false riches, unjust gain. See, riches are not a bad thing. And my feelings say, I want to be comfortable. I want to be healthy. I want to have enough food to take care of my family. I want to have things. But if those feelings lead me to sin, lead me to unjust gain, lead me to improper methods of, of getting my substance... God says, because this, these are the ones that are the heath in the desert, that it shall leave them in the midst of his days and at his end 
shall be a fool. There will be an emptiness. It will leave him quickly. Life is about more than just the ends of any given action or transaction. Life is about the means to that end. The means matter, not just in material terms, but in spiritual terms, because life is not, and indeed cannot just be material. Life is the merging of the material and the spiritual into a method that pleases the Lord. In verses 12 through 18, Jeremiah transitions into a hymn of praise. He says this in verse 12, A glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all that forsake thee shall be ashamed, and they that depart from me shall be written in the earth, because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for Thou art my praise. The hymn of praise begins by highlighting the nature of our relationship to God, and and it is truly beautiful. A glorious high throne, Jeremiah writes from the beginning, is the place of our sanctuary. Contrasting those that trust in the Lord with those that do not, those that trust in the Lord with those that make the flesh their arm, those that trust in the Lord with those that trust in their own feelings and their own heart. And Jeremiah says, as opposed to those who cannot prosper and will not prosper because of their injustice and because of their choices as it relates to their feelings, in our sanctuary is a glorious high throne from the beginning. We don't go and sit before an idol of stone We don't rest our hope and peace in some figment of our own imagination. Our sanctuary from the beginning has always been the glorious and high throne of the Lord our God. Jeremiah calls the Lord the hope of Israel. He acknowledges that all who forsake the Lord shall be ashamed, that it will not go with them as they would hope, that they will come to regret forsaking the Lord because the Lord is the fountain of living waters, because the Lord is the spring from which we draw. The Lord is the river by which a tree, if he plants himself there, will be fruitful and plentiful. Outside of the Lord exists only the temporal, the fleeting, that which satisfies for a time, but then vanishes away. The Lord is our spring of living waters. In God is true life. Not just the temporal life, not just the temporal quenchings of our spiritual and emotional thirst, not just the fleeting feelings of our emotions that come and go and it's a good day and it's a bad day. The Lord is the anchor for our soul as we studied this morning in Sunday school. Do you believe it? Jeremiah cries, Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me and I shall be saved for thou art my praise. He goes on in verses 15 and 16. Behold, they say unto me, Where is the word of the Lord? Let it come now. As for me, I have not hastened from being a pastor to follow thee. Neither have I desired the woeful day. Thou knowest that which came out of my lips was right before thee. Jeremiah says in verse 15, They say unto me, probably the people listening, the dissenters, those that are listening to his message, where is the word of the Lord? Let it come now. See, Jeremiah is pouring out his heart unto the Lord. And as he pours out his heart unto the Lord, he's thinking about all the people who are replying to Jeremiah's message with, well, where is the Lord that you're speaking of? If this judgment is coming, then where is it? Uh, Similar to the scoffers in the last days in 2 Peter, where are the signs of his coming? Right? They ask. And Jeremiah has an interesting response to this. As he turns his own thoughts before the Lord, he says, As for me, I've not hastened from being a pastor to follow thee. The idea here is this. God, they're asking, when is the Lord going to come? God, I'm not not in a hurry. I'm not in a hurry to stop being a prophet to have you come because he says here, I have not desired the woeful day. See, the day that, that, that you come, the day that you meet out what I'm saying you're going to, to do is going to be a day of judgment, of evil, and of, of terror. I'm not in a hurry to stop being a prophet because that day is coming. They're in a hurry to see it come. I'm not. They're saying, when is it going to come? And I'm saying, do you, do you really want it to come? 
uh, it would be similar to the scoffers in 2 Peter 3. Where are the signs of his coming? From the beginning, things have continued as they always were. Why doesn't he just come today? And you look at the scoffer and you say, maybe you shouldn't be in a hurry for him to come because you're not ready, because you have not repented, because you're not on his side. That's the idea here. But yet Jeremiah says at the end, all that has come out of my mouth, he says, all that which came out of my lips was right before thee. Lord, you know that whether you come today or whether you come uh, later, you know that I'm doing right, that I am saying what is right. And then Jeremiah prays in verses 17 and 18, be not a terror unto me. Thou art my hope in the day of evil. Let them be confounded that persecute me, but let not me be confounded. Let them be dismayed, but let not me be dismayed. Bring upon them the day of evil and destroy them with double destruction. So Jeremiah is appealing to the Lord here. He says, they are asking, when are you coming? I'm not in so much of a hurry for that to happen. But Lord, you know that I've done right by you. So preserve me, protect me. Confound them, confound my opponents, those that that are speaking the wrong, but don't confound me. And then he utters the desire that the Lord would in fact faithfully bring the judgment he has promised in his day. Now, beginning in verse 19, we have what would seem to be a context shift that focuses upon one issue, and that particular issue being the Sabbath. This will become evidently more important when we get to chapter 25. Let's read the rest of this chapter, and then we'll summarize its contents before we apply. Verses 19 through 27, the Bible says this, Thus saith the Lord unto me, Go and stand in the gate of the children of the people, whereby the kings of Judah come in, and by which they go out, and in all the gates of Jerusalem, and say unto them, Hear ye the word of the Lord, ye kings of Judah, and all Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, that enter in by these gates. Thus saith the Lord, Take heed to yourselves and bear no burden on the Sabbath day, nor bring in by the gates of Jerusalem, nor bring it in, excuse me, by the gates of Jerusalem. Neither carry forth a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath day, neither do ye any work, but hallow ye the Sabbath day, as I commanded your fathers. But they obeyed not, neither inclined their ear, but made their neck stiff, that they might not hear nor receive instruction. And it shall come to pass, if ye diligently hearken unto me, saith the Lord, to bring in no burden through the gates of the city on the Sabbath day, but hallow the Sabbath day to do no work therein, then shall thou enter into the, the gates of this city kings and princes sitting upon the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, they and their princes the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and this city shall remain forever. And they shall come from the cities of Judah and from the places about Jerusalem and from the land of Benjamin and from the plain and from the mountains and from the south, bringing burnt offerings and sacrifices and meat offerings and incense and bringing sacrifices of praise unto the house of the Lord. But if ye will not hearken unto me to hallow the Sabbath day and not to bear a burden even entering in at the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then will I kindle a fire in the gates thereof, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem, and it shall not be quenched. So God commands Jeremiah here to go to the gate of the city and to focus a message to the kings and to the people of Judah specifically about the Sabbath day. God recounts his command to the people that on the seventh day of the week, they are not to bear any burdens, but rather they are to hallow the Sabbath day to regard it as special and as sacred unto the Lord. And in a manner of speaking, God uses this as a case in point. He's not saying that if they were to just do this one thing, that the Lord would then uh, turn all of his judgment. But what he is saying is, uh, is this. This is a case in point that if you would turn from your wicked ways and do what I've told you to do, then I could show you mercy. It's a case in point. If you listen to me, if you regard the Sabbath day, if you bring in no burden, if you do as you have been told to do in the law, then I can bring kings through your gates for years to come and princes through your gates for years to come of the tribe of David, of the, of the family of David. But if you won't obey, then I can't bless you. It's that simple. If you won't obey, God can't bless you. I tell my children this. 
I want to bless you, but if you won't obey, I can't do it. As much as I want to, I can't. That's what God is saying here. I can't bless you. I can't give you mercy if you don't align yourself with me. And that finishes the chapter. I have two questions to ask you in our application this evening. There's a, a lot of very important principles in Jeremiah 17. And I'm going to ask questions as it relates to those principles. Question number one, are your roots planted in the source of life? Are your roots planted in the source of life? We read this promise in Jeremiah 17, verses 7 and 8. Blessed is the man who trusteth in the Lord and whose hope the Lord is. For he shall be as a tree planted by the waters and that spreadeth out her roots by the river and shall not see when heat cometh, but her leaf shall be green and shall not be careful in the year of drought, neither shall cease from yielding fruit. In these verses, we read that a man of blessing is the man that trusts in the Lord. He's likened to the tree by the waters, as we've explained already, that no matter what the circumstances are that come into his life, he will find stability of joy and of purpose and of peace because he is tapped into the source of life. I... I, I, Hope that as I read these verses, another passage came to your mind. One that I have to read very carefully this passage, because if not, I'll fall right into that other passage, because it's significantly more familiar. Jeremiah very likely pulled these words in verses 7 and 8 directly from the psalmist David, who wrote this in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his, forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Psalm 1 gives us the same message as Jeremiah 17, but helps us in a very real way. Jeremiah 17 calls upon the man to, call, to, to trust in the Lord and so to prosper. Psalm 1 tells us a little more about how we do that. To trust in the Lord. What does it mean? What does it mean to prosper? Well, the man who is like that tree that plant, that's planted by the rivers of the water, the man in whose, strength, who, whose trust the Lord is, he's a man that therefore does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. He's the man who trusts in the Lord and therefore does not stand in the way of sinners, does not sin, does not go into the way of sinners, does not join others in their sin. The man who trusts in the Lord is a man who does not sit in the seat of the scornful, who does not scorn truth, who does not mock truth, who trusts truth. To trust in the Lord is to delight in God's word, to meditate upon God's word. How can I trust in the Lord? What does it mean to trust in the Lord and so to become prosperous? How do I plant my roots by the river of the Lord? Open His Word and trust it with all your heart and obey it. Read it, believe it, obey it. But my feelings don't like that. That's right, that's why verses 9 and 10 came after verses 7 and 8 in Jeremiah 17. Because when push comes to shove and the Bible says God's way or man's way, my feelings are oftentimes going to say ah, man's way. Man's trust. Man's solutions. This is what's comfortable. This is what feels right. This is what's natural. This is what I like. This is what I want. And God says, you have a choice to make. Psalm 1 helps us see that. That if we are going to root our roots in the Lord, in trusting the Lord, in, 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 in this way of prosperity, it means I root myself in the promises and the commands of the Word of God. 
God's word, God's will, God's way becomes my life, my breath, my every moment. God's word is the river of water that if I plant myself by its flowing streams, it will sustain me in every circumstance. It doesn't mean it's going to take, that doesn't mean that God's word is going to put money in my pocket in the day that I don't have it. It doesn't mean that God's word is going to give me healing in the day that I'm sick. What it does mean is that in the midst of whatever circumstances life and circumstance may throw at me, God's word will sustain me and put me on that plane of joy and of peace and contentment regardless. When the hard times come, when the sorrows come, when the droughts of life threaten, when the storms of life blow, I remain unmovable because, not because I'm something special, but because I have planted myself by the rivers of living water and my roots are sunk so deep into it that when the droughts come and the storms blow and the winds assail and and all of the, the, the fires of life rage about me, I am anchored in the springs of living water. Life is full of unknowns. Life is full of inconsistencies. One moment you're basking upon the rocks with the sun on your face and the next minute the waves are crashing you into that rock with full force. But the word of the Lord is our anchor. All those who trust in the Lord by trusting in His Word, all those who trust in the Word of the Lord have found those words to be true, to strengthen them, to sustain them through the circumstances of life, to make their lives spiritually fruitful regardless of the circumstances within which they find themselves. The question is, is this you this evening? When Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, is that you? Are you trusting what God's word says above what you feel, above those base impulses and compulsions that would make you say, I want that, I need that, and so I'm going to go outside of God's provision to take it? Can you trust God's word above that? Can you trust God's word that if you do things his way, even though it doesn't always feel right, even though it doesn't always make you happy, it will bring about on the other end joy and peace and contentment and spiritual blessing that is indeed unfathomable. These are the fruitful. These are those who will be strong in the day of adversity. These are those who will find the glory in the life to come. Question number two. First, are your roots planted in the source of life? Number two, are you trusting in the Lord or are you trusting in yourself? So trusting in the Lord is trusting in God's word. We've established that. And this means we trust God's word even when our feelings and our emotions and our desires say otherwise. This is not easy, but it is blessed. The easy way is not always the way of the blessed. And the way of the blessed is not always easy. Not only is our heart easily manipulated by the world around us, but our heart is itself a force of deceit seeking to pull us away from that which is objectively true in God's word toward that which will make me feel good or that which seems right in the moment or that which makes the most sense, all of which are moving targets. They're moving targets. Do you see that? Do you see that your emotions are a moving target? That your feelings are a moving target? They are not things that you can pin down and say, this is right, this is wrong. You can't do that with your heart because your heart is deceitful and your heart is manipulatable. We should not fail to be able to connect these concepts to the reality of the modern culture in which we live on a fundamental level. We live in a culture that broadly considers the feelings of each individual to be the definition of truth. That if you feel something and if it is authentic, that means it is true. This undergirds the movement and the push toward homosexuality today. This undergirds the movement and the push towards transgenderism today. This undergirds the movement and the push uh, toward um, toward the social redistribution today. This undergirds the victim culture in African American society. This undergirds the victim culture in Native American society. This undergirds the victim culture among women today and, and, and the third wave feministic movement. It is all about this idea that because I feel something, that validates it. 
That if a person feels a certain way, if something makes a person happy, if a person is genuine about his motives and his desires, then what he is doing is not only okay, but it is truth. This is insane. This is impossible because this is a moving target. I can feel good one day and bad another day. Which one is true? Are they both true? Because neither is true if both are true because they're completely polar opposite. The only line drawn in society today at which a person's feelings and desires become not okay is when the powers that be determine that a person's feelings or desires harm someone else more than it harms them not to feel this way. In other words, the powers that be right now, particularly the scandal is in social media, right? They've decided that certain words are words that make other people feel bad and so they're starting to ban certain words and certain people saying certain things. The powers that be have a certain ideological perspective. And when the powers that be decide that certain words are the words that harm, then those are the only words that can harm. All the other words are okay. All the other feelings are validated. It's only the feelings of those who, by having these feelings, make other people feel bad that are bad. Again, can you see the moving target? Can you see how none of this has any standard but the standard by which some random person decides he wants to have? And the standard by which he's going to attempt to hold everyone else under his own power and his own feelings. And all of this is leading our society to be crippled. So in the example I used earlier, I feel bad for the poor and I have a genuine sympathy for them. This feeling is natural. And by the standard of the word of God, this feeling is right. So we can start there, right? The word of God says we ought to care for the poor. That's a good feeling. Now, what do I do with this feeling? I trust God's word. And if I trust God's word, then this feeling of sympathy is commanded to be alleviated at my own expense, right? God says, provide for the poor. God says, if you see a brother in need and you say to him, be warmed and filled, notwithstanding, you give him not what he needs. James asks, is this really faith? Right? So we have this command. I see the needs of the poor. My heart goes out to them. The biblical command is give to help them meet their need. But see, here's the thing. Now the biblical command conflicts with my feelings because I feel bad for them, but I also feel like I want stuff. Right? And so now I feel bad for them, but feeling bad for them is conflicting with my feeling to want to have money and want to have my own things. So God's word is telling me to take this feeling and to disadvantage myself for the gain of another, and my heart doesn't like that. So my heart devises a different solution and tells me that it's the true one. And the solution is this. Okay, so God's word says that it's good to feel, feel bad for the poor. Okay, so I've got that part down. But then God's word says I need to give to the poor, but my heart doesn't like that one because that means I can't have stuff. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go find people that have stuff and have money to spare. And I'm going to say we need to take the money from the people that have stuff and the money to spare to give to the people that don't have money so that I can make my heart feel good, validate my feelings while simultaneously not making my heart feel bad about losing my, my stuff. And that's called stealing. So I'm going to enforce a law or enforce some sort of power whereby I take something from someone else to give to another in order to make myself feel good. And that's where my heart has deceived me. That's where the solution is, becomes a problem in and of itself. Because now my good feeling has driven me to a bad action in order to produce another good feeling. And that's a problem because it bypasses the objectivity of God's word that says, you give to the poor. You give of that which you have. Ephesians 4, let a man work that he may give to him that hath need. Not let a man take some, what someone else has and give it to him that hath need. Are you trusting in the Lord or are you trusting in yourself? We live in a society that is dominated by such examples. This is the line of thinking that drove the sexual revolution of the 60s where the taboos 
of sexual intimacy outside of the confines of marriage were torn down on the basis that if it feels good, do it. Because man is naturally predisposed to these feelings, that means that these feelings are natural, therefore they must be good. Do you see the lie? Do you see how this is not true? How this cannot be true? That just because man likes something doesn't mean it's good? People who follow their hearts and then believe that because their feelings are genuine, their actions must be acceptable, and they demand then that everyone else accept their actions as well, which of course is the natural next step. So a man feels like he's a woman. And because his heart feels this way and he is genuine in his feelings, it's authentic, it must make it true. And society, in empathy, in order to validate their own feelings of empathy, now demands not only, not only validating him in his, in, in, his, in his absolutely incorrect feelings, but then they demand that everyone else validate him lest his feelings be hurt and he feel marginalized. So a man then is left to wallow in his own self-deception and not only is his heart deceived, but everyone else's heart goes right along with it. So people ask, if this desire isn't good, then why do I have it naturally? And since I have it naturally, it must be good and therefore I can indulge it, right? Do you see the problem? No war has ever been fought where both sides don't feel like they're doing something right. Right? The, the, two people don't sit down, two countries don't sit down and say, okay, you're the bad guy and I'm the good guy and you're going you're gonna to be the one that wants evil and I'm going to be the one that wants good and then we're going to fight this battle to see who's going to win. Right? No, no, no armies do that. One side says we're the good guys, the other side says we're the good guys and then we're going to fight it out. Because we're both the good guys. When the Germans were murdering millions of innocent people during World War II, it wasn't because the entire nation sat down and said, we are going to be evil. We're just going to be evil. Let's just be an evil, evil nation. But the entire nation had decided that the way they felt about nationality, nationalism, that the way they felt about race and about culture was more important than the lives of certain individuals. So their hearts justified their immoral actions on the basis of the ends justifies the means. We are purifying culture through our actions. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? The heart can deceive you into believing just such a thing. When communism was established in the Soviet bloc countries, in China, some 50 years later, each of these regimes, they did not kill the combined total of some 85 million people just because they woke up one day and said, we're just going to murder people today. Rather, their leaders in this nation felt that this new ideology, that this way of operation was so important that it was worth ignoring God's laws of human dignity, so they killed with impunity because their feelings validated their truths and their truths meant that people had to die. Do you see the slippery slope of trusting your heart? Now, I just took a pretty broad leap from sexual immorality to 85 million people dead over the course of 100 years. And that's just between China and the Soviet Union. We're not even talking about Pol Pot and, 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 and the many other evil dictators and, and how many they killed. But what I want you to see this evening is that both of those extremes have the same roots, which is a deceitful heart a heart that has manipulated emotions into driving people to actions and those people being convinced that those actions are true simply because of the way they feel. And if we trust our heart, it's going to happen time and again and it will not turn out well because our hearts are manipulatable. But more than that, they are actively deceitful in order to try to justify our actions. When the timeless principles of God's design are ignored to favor the whims of man's deceitful heart, the results are anything if not predictable. Where there is no truth and man makes up his own truth, truth will always be defined by the guy with the bigger gun. And nobody wants that. Might will make right.
Now, I said I've gone to these extremes. Extremes of this philosophy, extremes which ironically are becoming mainstream in culture at large. Let's rein this back into you and I, because uh, the point of any message is not that we look out and judge everyone else, right? That's not a healthy thing. It's important that you understand where our society is and where we relate to it. But let's start, let, let, let's, let's turn ourselves inward, can we, this evening? You feel that that boy or girl is the one you want to marry, but they aren't a Christian. They're not a strong believer. They, there are many red flags. The Bible says not to be unequally yoked. Or perhaps your parents, the God-given protectors in your life, have not given permission and blessing. They're not on board with this, even though you have the command to honor and obey your parents. And you say, but here's the thing. It's right. I love that person. Look at all the ways. Look at all the things that have worked out. Love conquers all, right? Well, who are you going to obey? Are you going to obey your feelings? Or are you going to obey the Bible? Are you the heath in the desert? Or are you the tree by the rivers of living water? You have the, that, that tremendous urge to buy that thing, right? It's that, tis the season. But you don't have the money, or it would not be a wise purchase. And you know the Bible says that, that debt is a dangerous thing, and you know that you have other obligations for your money. But I really want it, and isn't that enough? I feel like I should have it, and I feel like it's going to be okay. And I feel like I'll be able to find a way well, who are you going to obey? Your heart or God's wisdom? Are you the heath in the desert or are you the tree planted by the rivers of waters? Someone has harmed one that you love and your heart is full of unforgiveness and of vengeance. And they don't deserve forgiveness. They deserve vengeance. And they aren't sorry and they aren't going to ask for forgiveness and they are daring you. They, are, they feel as though they have won. They are smirking. They are smiling. They've won because you won't fight back. And they're mocking you and they're glorying in their strength over your weakness. And every ounce of you wants to hate them. Every ounce of you wants to get back at them. Every ounce of you wants to lash out at them. But the Bible says what? Brethren, avenge not yourselves but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Are you going to trust your heart, or are you going to trust the word of God? Are you the heath in the desert, or are you a tree planted by the rivers of water? So your parents are asking you to do something, and you're absolutely sure that they're wrong, because they don't know what they're talking about. They don't understand. They don't know you. They don't understand you. They're just being ridiculous. You know yourself better than they know you. You know your heart. You know your feelings. You know what is best. You know what you will and won't do. Why won't they trust you? They don't trust you. They think that you're going to do this. You know yourself better than that. And your heart is telling you to rebel. Your heart is telling you to go behind their back, to lie, to sneak out, whatever it might be. Who are you going to trust? Are you going to trust your heart or are you going to trust God's word? Are you the heath in the desert or are you a tree planted by the rivers of water? Are you going to submit and obey or are you going to rebel? You see, because cursed is the man that maketh flesh his arm. He is like the heath in the desert. Blessed is the man in whose trust the Lord is. Are you blessed? Will you be blessed? Or won't you? So your husband makes the wrong decision again. He's doing things that are making your life terribly difficult. He's making decisions that you can't understand. He's not leading in the way you would lead or that you would desire him to lead. And society is telling you just take charge, nag, demand, punish him by withholding emotional or physical support. Manipulate him through any number of means to get him to do what you want. But the Bible says submit, align your heart, go through proper chains of authority, trust the Lord, and you have a choice to make. Your heart wants you to get angry, to stay angry, to rebel. If not in action, then at least emotionally. Are you going to trust your heart or are you going to trust the word of God? Are you the heath in the desert or are you the tree planted by the rivers of water? We could go on and on, could we not? But let's just bring this to the Christian church level before we close. And if the Holy Spirit's putting his thumb on something in your life, I, I can't hit them all. But if the Spirit is hitting it, listen. Listen to what He's saying. Trust Him. Are you, the, are you the heath in the desert? Or are you the tree by the rivers of water? So, what about the church? Well, divorce is hard on people. And the biblical standard that those who divorce should not remarry is a difficult one, especially in modern society. 
It is also difficult in modern society to clearly articulate and defend God's prohibition against women leading in the home, women leading in the church, women not being pastors. What would guests think if we were actually pious believers separated from the world and culture? This does not fill seats. This does not make people feel happy. This does not validate people's feelings. This makes people angry. It alienates people. It bothers people. It offends people. And my heart tells me, therefore, that these things aren't the things that really matter, right? These aren't the things. If I just preach Jesus, then the rest of it will kind of iron itself out, right? I just let, let be what is. And then as I preach Jesus, then people are going to read the Bible and then they'll start to see that maybe these things are wrong and then maybe they'll start to iron them out in their lives. And that's what my heart tells me as a pastor. What am I going to do? Am I going to believe my heart or am I going to believe what the Bible says? Am I the heath in the desert or am I the tree planted by the rivers of water? Do I, do, am I going to make the flesh my arm or I am going to trust that if I do it God's way, then God's results will be there. And that's where blessing is found. I want to give an example that goes the other way, just briefly. I've committed a sin for the 10,000th time. And for the 10,000th time, I've gotten on my knees and I've confessed it before the Lord. And my heart is telling me that God cannot possibly forgive me again. And my heart is telling me that at this point, God must be giving up on me. It's not even worth trying any longer that I'm a lost cause, that I'm simply useless to the Lord. And I just need to give up because there is no hope. But the Bible says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What are you going to believe? Are you going to believe your heart that says that you are useless to God and no hope and, and, and that, that God has forsaken you? Or are you going to trust the word of God? Are you the heath in the desert or are you the tree planted by the rivers of water? Maybe you're struggling with salvation, with forgiveness, with faith. And it's for these same reasons that your feelings, your heart has convinced you that something simply cannot be true. God cannot truly love me. God cannot truly forgive me. There cannot truly be mercy, that, as the Bible would, would say it. God cannot love me that much. The power of God cannot actually be realized in my life in the way that the Bible says it can. And even though the Bible says it, you're trusting what you're feeling instead and it's, it's dragging you down. Who are you going to trust? Are you going to trust what the word of God says or are you going to trust your heart? Are you the heath in the desert or are you the tree planted by the rivers of water? Everywhere that life, society, culture, politics, and everything in between intersects with these teachings of the Word of God, we have a choice to make. Am I going to trust my feelings, my impressions, my gut, Am I going to trust what I see around me, what other people are telling me, or am I going to trust what God's Word says? Can we understand that truth is not subject to my feelings or my definitions? That truth is not what I feel it is, but truth is what God says it is. And the only time my feelings are true is when my feelings agree with what God says. Then my feelings are true because they agree with what God says. And any other time, as genuine as those feelings might be, those feelings of desire or of love or of sympathy or of empathy or of justification or of hatred or of vengeance or of frustration or anything in between, as genuine as those may be, as authentic as those may be, it doesn't make them true. You can be authentically wrong. Because the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? God's word is the standard and the only one that matters. And those who are blessed are those whose roots run the deepest into the truths of God's word and make the Lord their strength. May that be us this evening. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.